This is the Future is Green podcast. Welcome. Today we'll be talking about what's happening in the run-up to the Climate Summit in Scotland. Climate Summit's happening in Glasgow this year, this autumn. It's called COP26, that means it's a conference of parties. That's the signatories to the Climate Change Convention. We'll all be meeting there. Who are these signatories? What parties? These are all different countries who signed up to getting something done on climate change. Are we talking about politicians or politicians and scientists or politicians, scientists and activists? Well, that's the thing. Everybody's there. Everybody's there or maybe everybody's at home doing whatever it needs done to make sure that something's delivered this year. So we know who these people are, but who are you? I'm Tracy. I'm a local climate activist, part of the Transition Times movement. And you? I'm Istvan. I'm a local Green Councillor from Budapest, Hungary. Yeah, and why are we talking about this? Well, basically it kind of shows climate action can happen in lots of places. It can happen in councils, it can happen in communities, and it can happen at a political level as well. Today we will be focusing on the scientific and the political level, and we will be talking to guests who will be talking about the new European Union's climate law and the body that will be set up by this law, We'll be talking about greenhouse gas emission targets, reduction targets, and... And we'll be talking to activists as well from Extinction Rebellion and Fridays for Future who are part of that global movement that's going to make sure that something really actually does get done. Right, and our, our first guest, our first guest here on the Future is Green podcast is Bas Eichhout. Bas, we've had a little bit of a talk with him, you know, here before podcast started and what we know is he's been uh, taking part in the COPs for many many years and not always as a politician he has a pre-life tell us a little bit about this Bass what does a COP look like and what did you do there as a scientist and what are you doing now as a politician so it's a yearly gathering. Uh, of course, there are more moments in the year when, when people come together on climate, but this is the one formal UN climate summit, which is there every year, and it's putting together the negotiators. What's this one? What's, what's this next COP, COP26, going to demand of you? What are the key issues there on the table? This is still the last climate summit where we can really have an increase of climate ambition in this UN framework. Uh, Of course, every country can decide to be more ambitious on climate every day, but unfortunately, we still need public pressure, peer pressure on member states, on countries to do more. And this deadline of Paris is about to start. This is the last chance you can propose more than you have done until now, so that public pressure will be there in Glasgow and that will be the centre of attention. Can we push countries to do more on climate than they have promised until now? Mm-hmm. Great. And like to gl- collectively, you know, if we're looking at Europe, Europe's made a, a commitment to being a climate leader. European countries, European citizens, how's Europe going to deliver on this? <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I fear a bit that, that we do quite often in these international climate summits is that we are going to tell the rest of the world, we have done our homework, now it's your turn. And, and that is not true. I mean, yes, it is true this year we adopted a climate law, but this climate law is, is well, it's an increase of our climate ambition, but it's only to 
mine is 55 and then there are all kind of tricks with land use that it's even less than that whereas its size is very clear in order to have a chance to stay below the 1.5 degrees a, a group of countries like the european union should do at least minus 65 percent so the climate law is there and it is true that we are ahead of many countries in putting things into law but our ambition level is still not sufficient And if we are going to tell the rest of the world, well, we're done and now it's your turn, then of course you don't get the right momentum. So the pressure also needs to be on Europe to step up its game and really increase its climate ambition, despite that we now have adopted a climate law. But climate ambition, if we want to put that into a kind of a more normal phrase, it's like getting the maximum done, isn't it? What is the maximum that you would like to see Europe deliver on? And what's stopping this from happening? I mean, we hear a lot about the, um, you know, the fossil fuel lobby. You've made a demand now for like citizens to get involved and to push their governments, but who's pushing the other direction? It is indeed. It's 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 a, of course vested interests, right? So all the companies have been building their economy on a fossil on a fossil economy, basically, and. Basically, what you see now is more and more companies saying, "Okay, yes, we want to change and okay, we have to go to climate neutrality. But then, of course, the second point they make is not too fast and preferably the other sector first. That's 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 what's going on now. So they're not denying it. They are even agreeing with climate neutrality, but slower pace and the other ones should move first. So what should we expect from a European Union, not only to talk about a climate law, which is putting in a reduction number, but also really climate action, which means coal phase out. We have to get rid of the most polluting source of fossils, which is coal. And that needs to be this coal phase out needs to be done Uh, maximum 2030. So Germany needs to go faster. Poland needs to go faster. Romania needs to go faster. We still have European countries not going fast enough. But we have to do more action. Look at the cars. They are still running on diesel and gasoline. That needs to change. We need an end of the combustion engine as fast as possible. 2030 max. Also that is not being promoted because a country like Germany has a lot of German car industry who says... Okay, we want to move away from the combustion engine, but we need a bit of time for that. And that's always the, the key point. There is no time. You need to do it now. And, and the fossil lobby is just trying to buy more time. And that needs to be confronted also at the climate summit in Glasgow. Mm-hmm. And citizens are confronting this as well. There's, there's a major question, isn't there, that we're not talking about. What, happen if the, what happens if the plug gets pulled because of COVID? Um, well... Time is, we're running out of time. Our climate system cannot wait. And if you now see that that after COVID, we are basically going back to business as usual, leading also to an increase of our fossil fuel emissions, also within Europe compared to last year. If this is back to business as usual, our climate system will run into its barriers in a couple of years' time. So this Glasgow summit is really a moment of truth where words need to be translated into action also at the European side. And that's what that's taking in Glasgow. I think that's a wonderful place to stop. And thank you for your passion on this. Okay, let's move back into the present then. What's happening now? Let's hear some news. 
Germany's government is to revise its emission reduction targets after the country's constitutional court declared the current climate protection measures insufficient, aiming to become greenhouse gas neutral by 2045 rather than 2050. The legislative proposal is to cut emissions by 65% from 1990 levels by 2030. An 88% reduction of the carbon emissions is to be reached by 2040. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson welcomed Germany's move at a G7 summit. Boris Johnson, who hosted the three-day meeting, said on Sunday, We were clear this weekend that action needs to start with us. I don't know. Um, so it sounds like good news, and it definitely is good news that the German Constitutional Court pressured the German government to take on more serious commitments and targets. But I do wonder whether that German commitment will be similar on a European level, where obviously Germany's uh, commitments influence the European commitments and whether the numbers in the climate law will reflect this strength and will reflect uh, what the Constitutional Court is asking from the German government. The G7, which included the UK, US, Canada, Japan, France, Germany and Italy, committed to keeping the projected global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees. In the final statement, they said, We reaffirmed the collective development countries' call to jointly mobilise 140 billion euros per year from public and private sources through to 2025. However, Green campaigners say the summit's a flop because it's failed to secure the cash previously promised for the poor nations to cope with the heating climate on top of the COVID pandemic. Although, the G7's commitment to phase out call at home and stop financial call overseas could be significant and it would heap the pressure on China to follow. Meanwhile, another landmark court decision, not in Germany but in the Netherlands, a Dutch court has ordered Royal Dutch Shell to cut its emissions 45% by 2030 compared to 2019 levels, in a landmark ruling. It is the first ruling of its kind, forcing a large company to comply with our global climate targets. This landmark case was brought on by Millie Defensee and 17,139 civilian co-plaintiffs and could have far-reaching consequences for holding other big polluting corporations accountable. So maybe we get to hear a bit more about that later on in the podcast. What I took away was the this whole thing about the court being a place where climate action can happen. And for me, well, that that's a beautiful number, I think. 17,139 plus one citizens taking on Shell, taking on Shell and winning. I mean, that's just an amazing example of what Bas Eichhardt talked about, which is push, push, push. So thank you for listening to our first climate news bulletin and now we'll be going on to more discussions, discussions with our other guests. Istvan, who will you be talking to? I'll be talking to Michael Bloss, member of the European Parliament for the German Greens. So I'm very happy to welcome you, Michael Bloss, on the show. Thanks very much for coming. Um, I'd like to ask you a few questions 
about the upcoming uh, climate law for the European Union. Mm-hmm. Can you please give us a brief overview of what's coming, what's happening and how it came about? So it, it sets the orientation point because it sets how much CO2 and its equivalents are we going to reduce in the European Union until the year 2030. And um, all of this, what comes later with everything, all of the laws, they will orientate on this point um, to actually meet the climate target. So it's quite important. Um, it has been discussed since one and a half years and um, we are going to vote. But unfortunately, what the outcome is, is not very promising. It's insufficient to meet the Paris Agreement targets. So that's bad. Um, so sorry, you're saying uh, that it's important and it's a foundation of other uh, legislation uh, that could come after this. And at the same time, you're saying that it's not enough, it's not good enough. And you're suggesting, you're implying that you're going to vote what? So we will vote against the climate law simply because we we cannot vote in favor of something that is not in line with the Paris Agreement. That for us is very, very clear. Um, so scientists tell us that with the climate goal from the European climate law, we will be on a three degree um, hotter planet pathway and three degrees is much too much. That's basically already going after after all the tipping points. So that could mean really disaster. Um, so the European Union should really be um, living up to the Paris Agreement that says well below two degrees and actually 1.5 degrees. And um, that is not only what the Paris Agreement says, it's actually also what, for instance, the German Constitutional Court tells us that we have to be, it's a constitutional duty to um, stick to the Paris Agreement. And this uh, outcome of the climate law, unfortunately, does not. So we cannot vote for something that puts a target um, for the next nine years that are the most important years that is simply insufficient for meeting the Paris Agreement goals. I would think that the Greens were the ones who initiated the whole process of bringing this law about. What happened in the meantime, what happened in the last year that watered it down so much that you're now quite rightly against voting for this law with these targets? Who's to blame? So, yeah, we, we always wanted to have a climate law. It was very important for us to have a legislative um, process. So the parliament should have, or, well, we wanted that the parliament is involved because before it was basically always heads of state, so Merkel, Macron, Orban, that are um, agreeing on a climate target. We wanted to have it in law, so the parliament votes on it. But actually what happened is that we as the parliament, we came up with a very, very ambitious position. We wanted to have 60% less CO2 emission by the year 2030. We wanted to have a right for citizens to a healthy climate. We wanted to have a fully phase out of subsidies to coal, oil and gas. We wanted to have um, a scientific body and a lot of more things. And what happened is that heads of state agreed again on a a climate target that is 52.8% real emission reduction. So quite far away from what we as the parliament wanted. 
And then in the negotiations between the parliament and the member states, the member states did not move one inch away from it. So um, basically we got a climate law, a legal process, but in the negotiation process, the member states were not able to actually have any compromise with us on getting a higher ambition. So now we are having a legislative process. However, heads of states anyway decided on the ambition level and parliament, unfortunately, was not able to change that. I see. So it's the member states, heads of states uh, who are to blame after all. And if anyone can put pressure on them, it's their local constituents, people of each and every country in Europe. I hope that they're going to do that. But in the meantime, uh, we're going to have to live with this Could you tell us a few uh, elements, key elements of this law um, with the optimism uh, that in the near future it might change, the targets might change, at least we have a law, what are the key elements? So basically, just to, to, to make that clear again, first, it was actually the German government that was really the decisive one. If Germany would have opted for higher targets, then actually it would have happened, but they did not. So I hope that we change the German government soon. So we will actually get more ambitious climate policies in Europe. I think that would really make it possible. They are the bottleneck. Um, then if we look on to what is coming up now, it is, is the implementation. So this is not only the target, but then making the target happen. And this is where each and every citizen will also feel what it means. Yes. Um, is there going to be a new body or a new institution that oversees the implementation of these targets and decides whether they are on target, on track or not? And mm -hmm. will this body, if there is one, uh, be able to give recommendations only or sanction somehow Uh, the European institutions that are responsible for the implementation of this law? So for the climate law, um, the one thing that the European Parliament actually got through was a scientific council that gives recommendations um, to the European Commission and also the Parliament um, what to do with European climate policy. We have such climate councils in many member states. That's really good. So this is scientists. They sit together. They analyze uh, the policies from what, what, what is planned. They analyze what is needed um, from the atmospheric point of view. And then they're going, to, they're going to tell us if we are in line with what is needed from the, uh, for, for well, keeping climate crisis under control or we have to do more. So they give us, I hope every year, they will give us recommendations and that's, that's really great because we need to listen more to science. The, the thing is with climate, you cannot negotiate with it. You know, like even if you disagree, the climate will heat up if there's more CO2 in the air and that will have impacts on us. That's it. I can argue with this or not, but it, it's, it's just scientifically true. And they're going to tell us what is the outcome actually of, of what we are doing. So that's sometimes good because in politics, uh, we tend to always argue in favor of something, uh, how we want to do it. But yeah, you cannot negotiate with nature. <laughs> nature is just like like she is. And, and um, they will tell us um, how nature is reacting on what we as uh, human beings, as, as Europe are doing. So there's no sanction. Um, they cannot sanction us. They can just 
mirror to us what is happening and then we as politicians have to decide whether we want to react on this. I think that's also okay because it's the nature of politics that they make the decision, the nature of science is that they tell us what is happening. Um, and I just hope that it will give us um, the clarity um, that we are going to make the right decisions in the political realm. Yeah, uh, the Greens position, as I hear, is uh, very clear and very straightforward and quite complicated at the same time. I mean, the science is clear, your politics is clear, but the sad thing is that uh, your position has to be complicated because you initiated the process, you initiated the law, and then it was voted down. So now you will have to explain to people why you're not voting for it. And I think it could be a popular position, And I wish you the very best of luck to get that through to everybody in Europe. And thank you very much for being with us, Michael. Yeah, thank you very much. You know, I'm I'm not you know I'm not sad um, that this did not happen now. Uh, like this is I'm a bit sad that I cannot vote in favor, but I think it has to be very clear to us, and we have to be very strict on this. The Paris Agreement is what all of the states in the world signed, and. This decade is the decade where we are able to, to still uphold it. And therefore, it's just impossible for us to agree to something that is not able to fulfill the Paris Agreement. Yeah, we have a window of opportunity for 10 years. We should make the best of it. I'm trying to see if I got that correctly. Basically, what he said was that the European Parliament wanted a really strong law. But somehow, when I went through the political process, we ended up with a law that was going to mean that Europe that our politicians are not in line with what the whole world's saying about the 1.5 degrees and how important it is to stay below 1.5. Their law's going to leave us with three degrees of warming. Or two or 2.5, doesn't really matter. Uh, yes, you got it right. That's exactly what he said. And that's the reason the Greens are not going to vote for this climate law that they actually, in the first place, fought for. Wow, so like, yeah, I think I'm starting to see why, you know, this whole thing about how much we need to be led by the science of the, you know, of the climate issues is really, really important. It'd be good to know more about that. Okay, next up, I'm going to talk to Kevin Anderson, scientist from UK, and we're going to talk about the difference between 1.5 and 2 degrees as well, that which is, is really important. Our next guest today is Mr. Kevin Anderson. Um, Welcome, Mr. Anderson. Yeah, nice to be with you. Thank you. I did a mini research on you, and it no, says that you're, really? a, you're, a, you're an engineer and a scientist and have been or had been or were in the petrochemical industry for 10 years. And now you're known as one of um, the climate activists, people fighting for climate justice, climate protection. Uh, could you summarize that uh, journey to us? <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, yeah, it was a big, it was a big shift. At least it looks like a big shift from being in the oil industry, working offshore on oil platforms to, um, to working on climate change. But it, it, it was fairly clear to me, it was fairly clear even by the, by the early 1990s that we were on a trajectory that was really going, uh, going in the wrong, wrong direction. Okay. Um, as a fairly informed, relatively well-educated climate activist and green politician myself, I know quite a few things about uh, greenhouse gas emissions, emission reductions, reduction targets and base points. But 
how is the greenhouse gas budget? How does the greenhouse gas budget relate to all this? How is it different? How is it the same? Yeah. Okay. Well, firstly, I prefer to see it rather than as the greenhouse gas budget as the carbon budget, because remember there are a mixture of greenhouse gases and some don't last very long in the atmosphere, are quite short-lived like methane, just a decade or two. And other ones like carbon dioxide or nitrous oxides, they, they last in the atmosphere for hundreds and thousands of years. So I think it's very hard to bring them all together. So I tend to focus on carbon dioxide, which relates almost all, most of it from energy. So the, and that's where most of our warming comes from, about 20% or so from agriculture, um, but the rest really from burning fossil fuels. And there we have a very clear link from the science. The science makes it really evident that the temperature relates most closely to the total amount of carbon dioxide we put in the atmosphere. And that's called the carbon budget. And because in somewhere like Paris, we've agreed to hold temperatures to ideally well below two degrees centigrade, well, definitely well below two degrees centigrade rise, and ideally near 1.5, then the science tells us how much carbon dioxide we can emit. What is that carbon budget? With some uncertainty, but we have a pretty good idea of the total amount of carbon dioxide we can put into the atmosphere. And that is our carbon budget. If we want to stay within the Paris Agreement temperatures, then we know how much CO2 at a global level we can put in the atmosphere. And then taking account of some of the issues of equity and so forth that are also in the Paris Agreement and all the international agreements on climate change, we can then say something about, well, what does that mean for the EU or for the UK or for the US or for China or for um, Ghana? So we can say something about what that means for different countries around the world. And that's what I and other colleagues have been working on for quite a few years. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned the Paris Agreement and you are, and in the agreement they are talking about 1.5 degree Uh, target, but in other instances we hear about a two degree target. How serious is the different? How serious is the difference between the two? Well, let's be clear. Both of those those targets, I see them more as commitments and duties than targets. But both of those are will have serious climate imp impacts for people around the world. So neither of them are safe. 1.5 is probably the the right a rise of 1.5 compared with the pre-industrial period is probably the best that we can now achieve but that will mean severe will have severe impacts for many people around the world these will typically be poorer people who have not actually caused any of this problem they'll be impacted in terms of their agriculture the movement of um of insects that pollinate our crops by increased severity of um, extreme weather events and indeed increased frequency in some parts of the world. Um, this will force issues of migration and, and, and so forth, and also big wider impacts on ecosystems. But, um, so, but that's probably the best that we can now achieve is to not go above 1.5. At two degrees centigrade, it gets considerably worse. And what is interesting, and this is just half a degree difference, but actually the difference in terms of impacts is really quite significant. If you just took a really emblematic ecosystem like the Barrier Reef, everyone's heard of the Barrier Reef. At one and a half degrees centigrade, maybe about three quarters of the Barrier Reef is killed, which is pretty severe. At two degrees centigrade, you almost wipe out the whole of the Barrier Reef and similar warm water corals. So it just demonstrates how absolutely huge that difference between the two are. But let's not pretend 1.5 is also very dangerous for many people. It's from reduction uh, targets or reduction ambitions. Yeah. There's a really important difference between 
um, the carbon budget framing, which I say comes from the science and the targets that are often used when people talk about, oh, we'll, we'll have zero or even worse, net zero by 2050 or 2040 or some reduction by 2030. These in isolation have nothing to do with climate change. In fact, I would argue they're part of the problem because they almost always move the issue to some point in the future. I mean, the, the most important decade in terms of responding to climate change in line with the carbon budgets, which were informed by the science, is this decade. What do we do between now, you know, today, and over the next 10 years? That is absolutely crucial. What we do in 2030 and 2040 and 2050 only really matter if we've done made huge changes and reductions in the next few years. And so there's a real danger in this moving targets to a point in the future. When I always point out that you know, most of the policymakers and the scientists will either be dead or retired by the time they talk about these targets. But actually, the science tells us, what are we doing this afternoon? What are we doing tomorrow? What are we doing next year? And then that becomes a hugely challenging political um, issue. And that's why we always shy away from that. We always move away from that because we aren't prepared to put things in place now. And we've done that for 30 years. The first major report on climate change from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change came out in 1990, yeah, 31 years ago. So the European Union does not at all live up to its ambition of leading on climate action uh, yeah. if you strip away the lip service. So in practice... Yeah. It's falling very, very short of that. It is indeed. And this is really disturbing because where was the Paris Agreement signed? It was signed in the heart of the European Union. And who are the people who have all of the money, all of the technology and all the science to respond to the commitments that we signed up? It's, it is the European Union. And it is choosing to do almost nothing serious on climate change. Hmm. Uh, do you think, um, could you be a little bit more optimistic and say what we could and should do ended on up to the COP26 in Glasgow this November to make yeah. that right. Um, though although what I'm saying is all sounds very negative, there are, we know what we need to be doing. And actually, right at the moment, the people we should be listening to in terms of the scale of the action is much more civil society than it is the science community, the academics or the policymakers. The people who have the greatest scientific rigor at the moment, strangely, is the civil society movements who are arguing for more rapid change. So we know if you look at if, if the European Union was serious about this, it would say it would be looking to a rapid phase out of fossil fuel development within the EU. It would not be looking to new gas power pipelines. It would be building no more roads within the EU. Um, it would have no more expansion of aviation. It would introduce some very significant frequent flyer levy or high tax for the frequent flyers. It would have controls on the size of the houses that we built and the efficiency of those houses you wouldn't be able to be people that had these you know have numerous houses fly a lot drive big cars the inequality within the within the European Union would need to be dealt with and the reason I say that is not because of the moral framework it's because of the maths most of the emissions come from a relatively few high emitters at a global level and um, half of all emissions come from just 10% of the population. And even more worrying, the top 1% of global emitters, quite a lot of who will live in the EU, have emissions, total emissions, that are twice the bottom 50%. You know, 1% of the population having twice the emissions of the bottom 50%. The EU is a deeply unequal part of the world. And within, if we're going to solve climate change from a maths point of view, the high emitters 
within the EU have got to be forced to make massive reductions in their footprint, in my footprint, people like me, people of you know, professors and academics and, and policymakers and entrepreneurs and, and business people. We are the high emitters in our society and the policies need to be put in place to bring our emissions down. And we know what to do on this. Mr. Anderson, thank you very much for joining us. It's my pleasure. That guy was really frank. I mean, we've been talking about this word ambition. We keep throwing this word ambition around, but he was talking about something else. He was talking about honesty. And really, I have no idea who we're fooling. I mean, if we want to talk about like fooling nature, then we're kind of like on a bit of a bad, a bad ride there, aren't we? Yeah, like, we can't negotiate with climate change, no. no he, he was frank, he was honest, he was ambitious, and he... he I mean, what really touched me was this climate justice angle and, you know, he was talking about reducing his own emissions, changing his own lifestyle. And I know uh, lifestyle change is not enough, we need a system change, but he was talking about a system change where the top 1% should cut its emissions so that it's less than twice the bottom 50%. Yeah, that's a really, really amazing statistic, to be honest. And that's the thing that gets me about climate quite a lot. There's an awful lot of numbers in there. There's a lot of dates, a lot of statistics. But then I think there, if there's something we can really take away from this podcast so far, we do not want an EU which is going for a three-degree change. A three-degree change, which is basically a climate catastrophe. And if what it needs is like a really strong legislative framework, which was, this is what this guy was talking about, yeah, bring it on. Mm -hmm. Thanks, thanks, Kerosene, please. It's time to welcome our next guest. Hi, Jan, I'm Istvan from Hungary. How can I, how can I address you? Would you like to be Mr. Dupa? No, well, I think you can call me Jan. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, welcome to our podcast, The Future is Green. I understand that you are an expert advisor to the Green Group and the European Free Alliance Group in the European Parliament. Is that right? Exactly. Uh, I'm advising the members of the, the Green members of the European Parliament on climate policy, yes. You've said that uh, the targets that the commission set uh, are not sufficient and you give some examples of what kind of loopholes there are in in this mixing of the sinks and the emissions. Yeah. Are there any other things to watch out for which sound green but are not green enough? What other loopholes are there, if there are any, uh, in this proposed climate law? There, there, are, there are many loopholes. There are many things that sound green, but that are not really. But in the climate law, I think that was one of the major loopholes. And actually, we managed, and the Greens were, were instrumental in this, we managed to put a, a firewall between uh, emissions reductions and removals. So, uh, because we need to do both. I mean, we need to understand that we need to drastically reduce our emissions, but we also need, as I said, to protect and to enhance our forests and our ecosystems, not only because of climate change, but also because we are also facing a biodiversity crisis. So we need to protect those ecosystems, uh, both to mitigate climate change, but also uh, to, to fight against uh, the biodiversity crisis. Um, and we have managed to put this firewall so that as we, 
uh, protect and enhance our ecosystems. Um, this cannot be used to, as I said, to uh, lessen the, the the reduction effort from the other sectors. So we cannot. We know we see it a lot uh, in the news as well. A lot of companies saying or claiming they will uh, become climate neutral. We have, including big energy companies, but also, for instance, airline companies that says we are going to get climate neutral. But actually, what they do is that they reduce a very much, a very, a very little of their emissions, and they compensate everything by saying they will plant trees. But uh, this is this is not a, this is a false climate solution definitely um, we have many experience of uh, very bad projects that have been financed financed by those sort of what we call offset uh, offset uh, projects um, so we need to do both we need to drastically reduce emissions and we also need to protect as I said and enhance our ecosystems um, and um, this was the major loophole in the climate law and uh, as I said thanks to the greens we managed to put a firewall between the two uh, so now we should pursue both at the same time unfortunately that's what we've said uh, all along and that's why we are very disappointed by the outcome of the European climate law. Unfortunately, we will do both, but not at, at, a, at, a, at the right pace, not at the pace that the scientists tell us to do, so not fast enough. Would you, could you give any suggestions to activists, uh, scientists, politicians, any other partakers, participants who go to the COP, what to push for, what to lobby for uh, with this new climate law in head? and with all the situation with the Paris Agreement and globally what's happening around climate protection. Yeah, I mean, the main message, of course, is, is, is protect and, and act upon the Paris Agreement. So make sure that all the plans that are, are going to be put forward by the members, by the countries, um, they are in line with, with what science tells us to do to remain below 1.5. And that's, as Michel Bloss said at probably earlier, um, we will vote against, as Greens, uh, we'll vote against the climate law because the targets are, as I said, not ambitious enough. They are not in line with Paris. And we don't have another decade. Huh? We, I mean, all the scientists that tell us that this decade until 2030 is the decade to act and the decade, the only decade um, to make sure that that we can have 1.5 um, uh, within reach. And that's going to be the, the key, uh, the key ask and the, the key thing to watch uh, at COP26 later this year is whether the plans that will put, be put forward by the countries are uh, um, in line with 1.5. They are scientifically sound. <clears throat> And as I said, unfortunately, the EU will come at the negotiation table will unfortunately uh, um, um, not an ambitious enough target. We hope that other countries will, will deliver, but we also need to make sure that us in Europe, uh, we continue also um, increasing our ambition. We have a big package that is coming now uh, in less than a month on the 14th of July that will implement um, the European uh, climate target that was set in the climate law. And we as Greens will continue pushing for more ambition. Uh, as I said, also to try to fight against those false climate solution. We have a big loophole on the bioenergy part as well. You know that we are burning our forests mm -hmm. um, for energy and that has a huge impact on, on biodiversity and on climate as well. And so far it's been considered as climate neutral, as having no impact on climate change, but it does have an impact on climate change. So those are the things that we're going to watch out um, uh, for the for the big packages coming in July. Um, and as I said, yeah, higher higher climate ambition for November will be key, of course. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much for all the details. Uh, the main key message I'm hearing is that we have a 10 year window of opportunity. We are, a, we are in a historic time, in a historic place, and we could play a historic role and we should do that. Thank you very much, Jan, for coming. Our next guest, 
our next speaker on the Future is Green podcast is Per Holgrim. Per, per is a, an MEP from Sweden and he's very, very well qualified to talk about the role of science in the climate crisis um, where the European Union is setting up uh, a body which will dedicate itself to delivering climate commitments on the best scientific knowledge available. The European Climate Change Council, this is something you're involved in, yes? Yeah, it is very important that uh, we have this uh, European Climate Council um, I mean, IPCC, uh, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, are delivering their reports, doing a very good job, if you ask me. But we also need a, a body like this, the European Climate Council, to, to make sure that uh, that that the EU's the progress towards climate neutrality or whatever in the future that we can. Uh, keep up with our commitments. And, and very, very important also, of course, is that once we have some sort of greenhouse gas budget, uh, that we have uh, this council to, to supervise, that, that we're moving in, in the right direction and doing the transition as fast as possible and as fast as we need to. Mm-hmm. Help us, help us understand what's the connection between the science and the politics? Because originally... You know, our starting point was, our starting point was that this climate change council is to put the the science into the politics. We we know very well what needs to be done, uh, but um, as I mentioned, uh, some of the other political groups now and then, if you ask me, uh, try to use. Uh, parts of, of science that, that may be in line with parts of their policies. But now uh, we need to, to get the overall picture and, and really see that this scientific committee then, then should uh, assess climate policy and, and determine uh, uh, that, that, um, that we're doing this uh, transition uh, uh, as ambitious as as we need to, as, as fast as possible. Great, thanks. And so I'm glad you used the word ambitious. European Union would like to be a leader on climate policy. Is this body going to help it achieve this? Hopefully, but uh, I mean, uh, we're not sure yet what kind of mandate uh, this uh, council will have. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a similar construction in, in Sweden, uh, and it's not like uh, that uh, scientific council in, in, in Sweden can can tell the politicians, no, uh, this is not uh, enough, you have to do it once again. They, they can just say that this is not enough. Mm-hmm. Thanks very much. A, a brief last question. If you, Per, per Holgrim, could decide what kind of mandate it would have, what kind of teeth it would have, what teeth would you give it? Yeah, uh, of course. I mean, if you would stretch it, then you could say that in, in, in a perfect world, uh, uh, a council like that uh, could even have some sort of veto. But, but that, 
one, once again, we need this uh, discussion between the, the different political groups, of course, but uh, that discussion needs to be based on, on scientific evidence. And I think that is the first very, very important step that needs to be taken. And I think and I hope that uh, a European Climate Council could, could be such a, a tool and such a platform. Great. Thanks very much. Thanks very much. I think that's a good point to end. You're listening to the Future is Green podcast. Let's continue with our next guest. I'd like to welcome Marco Pito, who is joining us today in a personal capacity, but as an activist from Fridays for Future and from Extinction Rebellion. Marco, as far as we know, you know, you're really committed to not just the you know, the COP26 happening in 2021, but you were also all active last year, expecting the COP to have happened. What's Fridays for Future and Extinction Rebellion hoping for, or determined to see, rather, if we use stronger language, from COP26? So Fridays for Future and Extinction Rebellion are determined to get a global agreement which is binding and which takes into account the historical responsibility of Western countries on climate change. We have had enough of empty promises, empty words. They are still signing agreements. They've been talking and negotiating for 26 years. This is enough. Enough talking, start acting. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? When we say COP26, what we actually are talking about is 26 years. That's enough time for someone to grow up, become an adult and take responsibility. Are these politicians this time round going to take responsibility? We are losing hope that they're doing so. And it looks like that we, the youth, are the only adults in the room. We are the only ones speaking truth to power and making the science clear, putting the science first and the most affected people and voices heard. It looks like that politicians are not doing so and are not mature enough for treating it for what it is, an emergency. An emergency. And you said it's a global justice emergency, a climate justice emergency. Can you tell us some more about that? You know, when you talk about it, climate change being a um, that was the issue that we started from. We moved on to climate emergency and climate crisis, but you're calling for climate justice. Yeah, climate justice is global justice, social justice, is intergenerational justice, is a way of looking at the world which takes into account all the walks of life for people, takes into account that some have exploited the others, that have depredated the resources and are causing the climate crisis in the first hand, and there are those who are less paying the consequences of that. So we need to take into account that right now, why these white men people are talking, there are people that are already paying the direct consequences of this. And we should start listening to the voices that are the most affected in order to bring real change. Thank you. Thank you. And so what you're telling me is if people want to be involved, you don't need to go to Glasgow. You can be involved locally, wherever you are. You can take take a stand for the climate justice. Absolutely. Everybody's needed. Everybody's welcome wherever you are. Uh, wherever you can do, it's really appreciated and really need to show politicians that we 
we had enough. Enough is enough and it's time to, to start acting. Brilliant, thank you. And if you want to find more information about that, about these coordinated actions, where do we look online? Follow our social networks uh, pages or our website, Fridays for Future Extinction Rebellion, and get engaged with your local group. There will be local group organizing actions, marches, protests all around the world. And if there is not, create your one. Brilliant, strong message. Thank you. So we've come to the end of the first Future is Green podcast, which we're bringing you from Budapest, the Budapest which is presently 37 degrees outside. And this room where we're sitting feels like 37 degrees as well. This podcast timing is not accidental. What's happening this week, Istvan? This week, on Thursday, the European Parliament is voting on Europe's climate law. You mean that climate law which will give us three degrees more than what we're actually facing outside here at the moment? Yes, the climate law with targets that binds us to a climate catastrophe. Yeah. To a climate catastrophe. And that's so important to be thinking about if we're the citizens and we think of ourselves as citizens, not only of our own countries, but of Europe, then those three words which, which were said at the beginning of the podcast, push, push, push. We do need to push all of these politicians to take all of this, not more seriously, but deadly seriously. Yes, let's keep the pressure on. Thanks to all our guests, we've had very committed politicians, very serious scientists and very rightfully outraged activists on this show. Thank you for listening to us and we hope to see you or hear from you in November around the COP26. <laughs>